the community for almost a decade a restaurant enjoyed success In 1897, the Robinson Restaurant and Bakery was demolished to begin construction on the Hotel Robinson. Margaret's mother, Susan, was most likely involved in financing the construction. Local community members C.R. Wellington and F.L. Block oversaw the construction. It was completed and opened in the same year. The hotel was built with 14 guest rooms, a full kitchen, dining room, and a parlor room. The hotel became a social center of the community. Many settlers would eat most of their meals at the hotel and visit daily. Some of the wealthiest and most influential families in San Diego at the time such as the Scripps and the Whitney's were also frequent guests as well as visiting senators and congressmen. A monthly dance for all community residents was held at the Julian Town Hall, right across the street from the hotel. After each dance, Margaret would prepare a midnight feast at the hotel for all the participants. On June 10th, 1915-1915, Albert died to an unknown illness. Margaret continued to operate the hotel and restaurant until 1921. She sold the hotel to the Martin Jacobs for 1500 
$1,000. The Jacobs family continued to own the hotel for 47 years. During this period, the hotel was renamed to the Julian Hotel in honor of the previous Julian Hotel built in 1872 and burned in 1900. Today, the Julian Hotel is the only hotel in the town and is furnished in an early 20th century style in keeping with the original vision that the Robinsons had. Thanks to present-day owners, Steve and Gig Ballinger, the hotel is a part of the National Register of Historic Places and a California Point of Historical Interest. Once again, we honor and salute Rico Hunter on his birthday. Yeah, man, it's Rico's birthday, man.
from Marley celebrating Rico's birthday, man. Get up, stand up, man. tonight the verdict just moments ago in the jussie smollett trial the jury finding the actor guilty on five of six counts for staging a racist anti-gay attack on himself how long smollett could spend behind bars our team at the courthouse tonight dramatic testimony in the trial of a former officer who says she mistook her gun for her taser when she fatally shot dante wright 
Wright's girlfriend in tears testifying about her frantic attempt to save Wright's life as he was gasping in his final moments. A new video of the crash caught on camera. Also tonight, the FDA and CDC authorizing Pfizer boosters for 16 and 17-year-olds a day after Pfizer said boosters provide strong protection against the Omicron variant. Nationwide fears of a winter surge as the unvaccinated fill ICUs. The state's deploying the National Guard to hospitals. The cross-country winter storm we're tracking up to three feet of snow. President Biden's high-stakes call with Ukraine's president days after he warned Vladimir Putin against a Russian invasion. Our Richard Engel on the front lines in Ukraine tonight. Former senator and presidential nominee Bob Dole honored while lying in state at the Capitol. And after a tragedy, how one community is helping the band play on. This is ABC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening, a verdict as we come on the air in the closely watched Jesse Smollett trial. A Chicago jury tonight finding the former Empire actor guilty on five of six counts related to lying to police about being the victim of a hate-driven attack in 2019. The verdict coming on the second day of deliberations. Rahima Ellis has the breaking news for us. Rahima? Lester, Jesse Smollett stood with his arms crossed and he was stoic as the jury read the verdict. As you point out, he was found guilty of five of six counts, not guilty on a charge of reporting a false, aggravated battery to police. But it was nearly three years ago that he was facing six felony counts of reporting a fake, anti-gay, racist attack on himself and lying to police about it. On the witness stand, he had always insisted on his innocence, saying there was no hoax, but the prosecution had told jurors that he had orchestrated a hate crime, paying two brothers to stage the attack. Smollett now could face up to three years in prison. It's expected his lawyers will appeal, but it's not over with that. The city of Chicago is suing him in civil court for $130,000, the cost of the police investigation. Lester? All right, Ryan Ellis in Chicago with the breaking news. Thank you. In Minneapolis, emotional testimony today in the manslaughter trial of a former police officer accused of killing Dante Wright during a traffic stop. Wright's girlfriend describing her attempts to save him. Ron Allen is there. I just put my hands on her chest and I just tried to hold it and just tried to scream his name. Dante Wright's girlfriend, the passenger in his car, describing the moments after former police officer Kim Potter, charged with manslaughter, had shot him in the chest. He's just, like, just gasping. Just like, he just wasn't saying anything. Today, the jury's seeing more new police video as prosecutors focus on what happened in the minutes right after the shooting. Wright's car taking off, jumping a median, crashing into an oncoming vehicle. Put your hands up! Police testifying the first officers to arrive had no idea one of their own had shot Wright. One even telling the jury just after the crash, he thought Wright was still alive. Did you see movement of the driver? Yes, sir. And that would be indicating that at that point in time, the driver was still alive, correct? Yes, sir. Prosecutors say the minutes after Potter shot Wright revealed more examples of how she failed in her duties that day. She didn't do anything to help him. She didn't call for assistance. She didn't render aid. She didn't communicate any information about what had happened to her fellow officers. The defense trying to convince the jury Wright's attempt to evade arrest for an outstanding warrant caused his death. I shot him! Oh my God! Telling the jury Potter's grief and regret are inconsolable. The jury seeing this video of Potter in the minutes after she shot Wright and 
while he lay dying not far away. Testimony continuing with more officers who responded that day, and more video and pictures showing what happened to Wright. Some of it too graphic to show here. Lester? All right, Ron, thank you. The news of the pandemic tonight, 16 and 17-year-olds have just been okayed for Pfizer booster shots. The CDC signing off on that today as the Omicron variant spreads. Almost 50 million vaccinated Americans have now received booster shots. Today's recommendation would potentially make 2.6 million teens eligible. But at the current daily rate of deaths, the country may be just days away from reaching 800,000 COVID dead. Some hospitals report walking into their ICUs is like walking back in time. Tom Costello has the latest. Today's CDC approval, just two weeks till Christmas, means 2.6 million teens will be eligible to dramatically boost their COVID protection before gathering with family and friends over the holidays. Pfizer's booster now authorized for fully vaccinated 16 and 17 year olds at least six months after their second dose. While those initial vaccine doses offer a strong defense against the Delta variant, Pfizer says its research shows the booster is essential to mounting a strong defense against the fast-spreading Omicron variant. So far, younger kids are not eligible for the booster. I would think that at least for the next several, several months that the kids will be okay because in general, they do better than adults when it comes to immune responses. Children under 18 make up 22% of all COVID cases. Meanwhile, at hospitals nationwide, many frontline doctors and nurses say it feels like the worst days of the pandemic once again. ICUs filled with unvaccinated COVID patients struggling to breathe. From a nurse in Arkansas. I'm tired of it. Us nurses, other co-workers, respiratory therapists, all the medical team, we are tired. To doctors in Colorado. Another day, another shift with no beds here in Colorado. And Indiana. Our number of COVID patients doubled over the weekend. Our ICU is full. Heather Danik, a critical care nurse at UW Swedish American Hospital in Rockford, Illinois. We have young people, we have old people. I'm easily taking care of people my age and definitely younger than me. The situation so serious in the Northeast, the governors of New York, New Hampshire, and Maine are sending National Guard troops to help in the hospitals. Our hospitals are being stretched thin. Health care is jeopardized for those who need it. And our health care workers, as heroic as they are, are more exhausted than ever before. We're at a tipping point. December 2021 feeling a lot like December 2020. And Tom, back to the boosters for teens. There's not complete agreement among doctors about the need for them. Not at all, including Dr. Paul Offit on the FDA's advisory panel for vaccines. He doesn't think teenagers need boosters. He doesn't think that they're going to get that sick right now from COVID or the mutations. He's more concerned really about heart inflammation with teenage boys than he is really about COVID. But again, we have full approval now from the FDA and the CDC, Buster. All right, Tom Costello, thank you. We're tracking the first big winter storm of the season sweeping across the country. Winter weather alerts are up across 17 states from the West Coast to the Great Lakes. Up to three feet of snow forecast in some areas. By the start of the weekend, it's expected to bring severe weather to the Southeast and Mid-Atlantic. Well, turned out of the crisis in Ukraine with fears of a potential Russian invasion, President Biden holding another high-stakes call, this time with Ukraine's president. Kristen Welker is at the White House. What do we know about today's call, Kristen? 
Lester, the White House described the call as warm, saying it lasted nearly 90 minutes, and that President Biden reaffirmed to Ukrainian President Zelensky the U.S. commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty. Now, it comes two days after the president had that video call with Russian President Vladimir Putin, warning him not to invade Ukraine. But Russian troops have not moved back from the border so far. Multiple officials here say the U.S. is preparing tough economic sanctions if Mr. Putin escalates the crisis. Lester. Okay, Kristen. And on the frigid border between Ukraine and Russia tonight, tensions remain very high. Richard Engel is on the front lines with Ukrainian troops. The front line between Ukraine and Russia is on high alert tonight. All leave canceled for the troops will be spending the holidays in the trenches. Muddy today, often frozen solid. These positions are designed to stop or at least slow down a Russian advance. They could be tested with about 100,000 Russian troops, tanks, and artillery massed along three sides of the Ukrainian border and by pro-Russian militias already inside Ukraine. This is the most dangerous flashpoint. Ukrainian troops occupy these trenches 24-7, and pro-Russian forces are just about 50 yards away. And according to the Ukrainian soldiers here, those Russian-backed troops fire on them almost every day. And it wouldn't take much for an escalation here to trigger a much wider war. When some uh, side uh, start that attacking, it's uh, have casualties, no matter what they do. Lieutenant Ivan Skuratovsky showed us his front-line position, a rubber factory devastated by an eight-year war with pro-Russian separatists that now has the potential to trigger the biggest conflict in Europe since World War II. Skuratovsky is under orders to exercise maximum restraint. We have no reasons to start the war. To avoid giving Russia a pretext to attack. Putin, uh, I think, not stop in the Ukraine. If we don't stop it here, they go further. Nearby, Ukrainian troops showed us the separatist positions. They say they're backed, armed, and advised directly by Moscow. Ukrainians say Putin has all the troops he needs in place to invade. And now, is just looking for a reason. Russia says all it's trying to do is defend the pro-Russian community here in Ukraine. And today, Putin accused the Ukrainian government of carrying out what looks like a genocide against it. Lester. Richard Engel, thank you. In just 60 seconds, rapper Travis Scott's first interview since that deadly concert, what he's saying to victims' families. And amid a historic opioid epidemic, New York's controversial step to save people from drug overdoses. In his first interview since that deadly concert in Houston last month, rapper Travis Scott is expressing anguish and addressing victims' families. Here's Miguel Almaguer. My intentions, you know, wasn't to, you know, it wasn't to harm their family at all. In his first interview since the tragedy at his concert, Travis Scott expressed remorse, but said he's not to blame. The Travis Scott show, or, you know, an actual show, you know, wasn't the bottom line fact of what happened. In a lengthy conversation, Scott spoke with TV and radio host Charlemagne the God, saying he did everything he possibly could on the night of November 5th. While headlining his own festival, 10 were killed during a crowd surge and hundreds were injured. But the show in Houston went on for more than 30 minutes as the rapper...
rapper says he was unaware of the mayhem unfolding. Did you hear any of those screams? Nah, man. And you know, it's so crazy because I'm that I'm that artist too. Like, you know, anytime you can or something like that, you want to stop the show. And this week, with hundreds of lawsuits filed seeking billions in damage, Scott denied legal liability and asked for several claims to be dismissed. 21-year-old Axel Acosta died in the chaos. This is all part of a culture that Travis Scott created himself. And now he tries to pretend like he was surprised or he's a victim. He's no victim. I have a responsibility to, to figure out what happened here. I have a responsibility to figure out the solution. Tonight, Travis Scott breaking his silence, but not satisfying critics. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. We turn now to our series, One Nation Overdosed. Amid the pandemic, the U.S. set another tragic record. More than 100,000 drug overdose deaths in a 12-month period. Now, New York City is taking a controversial step to save lives. Jacob Soboroff with our NBC News exclusive. Since the beginning of last week, inside that facility across the street, the city of New York has allowed people to use illegal drugs like heroin and fentanyl under the supervision of a professional to stop them from dying of an overdose. Sam Rivera is the facility's executive director. Some people might call it crazy. I use a different C word. <laughs> to be courageous enough to do this, and, and we're seeing it. Already 17 lives reversed. Come on. 17 people have overdosed since you opened last week. Since we opened last week. And all of them have survived. All of them have survived. Hi, Kaylin. As Kaylin C. took us on a tour, the number of lives saved grew by one. So, an overdose just happened just now? Yes. It's 100% reversible. New York City Health Commissioner Dave Choksi, a physician, says opening the facility is based on science. Have you talked to the commissioner of the NYPD about whether or not they'll be arresting people that go into these facilities to use drugs? Yes, we've had very productive conversations. We have a common mission, which is to save lives. And uh, NYPD and other local law enforcement um, will not enforce in overdose prevention centers. When we were inside, there were half a dozen clients using drugs. No more improperly discarded syringes on the streets, near our schools, in our subway stations. You won't you'll find way less than all who told us he's a Marine Corps veteran and was using heroin as we spoke. I've gotten more help here than I've gotten from, uh, you know, from the VA. Not everyone's convinced. Some worry about sanctioning what is illegal activity. Others over what it could mean for the neighborhood. You know, there's a worry amongst people in the community. They don't want syringes in the street. They don't want people using drugs in the street. They don't want any paraphernalia in the street. Okay, we agree. And that's how you're going to stop it. That's how we stop it. A harm reduction strategy used around the world for decades, now open in the United States. Jacob Soboroff, NBC News, New York. And up next, we'll tell you about the big change brewing at Starbucks, where history was made today. For the first time today, workers at a Starbucks store, one of almost 9,000 in this country, voted to form a union. It happened in Buffalo, New York, where union organizers said workers were emboldened as they worked through the pandemic. Workers at another Starbucks in Buffalo voted not to unionize. A third store is still uncertain. China is facing international outrage after an independent tribunal accused the government of committing genocide against the Muslim Uyghurs in a new report out today. Peter Simmons with more now from London. Tonight.
despite China's human rights record condemned again, just days after the U.S. announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Games. In this court-like setting in London today, a judgment from an international tribunal. The PRC has committed genocide. Uyghur Muslims, a minority group from Western China, have been speaking out at the tribunal's hearings, witness after witness, saying things like, punishments included savage beatings, sleep and food deprivation. Police officers took the children away by force. Among the evidence the panel has reviewed, leaked documents alleging China's president authorized this treatment. Uyghur Moweta Ilakut gave evidence. She has documented 232 re-education camps, 257 prisons. There is a, a genocide going on. There are millions of people being locked up in this so-called uh, re-education camps. We traveled to Istanbul, where thousands of Uyghur refugees live in exile. Here, a recreation of a Chinese re-education camp the refugees say are being used in China right now. They call them concentration camps with torture rooms. This is an interrogation room. Yes, and this is a tiger chair. A tiger chair. They call it tiger chair. But even outside China, Uyghurs don't feel safe. Zanora's husband, Idris Hassan, was arrested in Morocco earlier this year. She is left with their young children and fears he will be sent to a Chinese prison. I should stay strong. I, I am... I have three thousand. While we are with her, she gets a call from him in prison. What did he say? He said he, he was really scared. Families divided by Chinese authorities who accuse Uyghurs of trying to create a separate country. These issues are purely Chinese domestic affairs, the Chinese embassy in Washington told us. We are firm in upholding national sovereignty, security, and development interests. Their statement ending, stop making irresponsible remarks. Are you scared? No. Why not? I think the worst is happening already, and it can't be even worse than this. The U.S. has already accused China of genocide, while this week more countries joined America's diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Games. Lester? All right, here. thank you. Coming up after a tragedy, banding together and inspiring America. moment at the U.S. Capitol, Elizabeth Dole placing her head on the casket of her husband, former Senator Bob Dole.